You're listening to KRUI 89.7 Iowa City. Welcome to Bijou Banter, produced by the Bijou Film Board, a student-run organization at the University of Iowa dedicated to the exhibition of provocative and engaging cinema. Since 2013, Bijou has assisted with the programming and operation of Film Scene, a nonprofit cinema in downtown Iowa City. As a disclaimer, all of the opinions expressed during Bijou Banter are those of the hosts and our guests and not those of KRUI or the University of Iowa. It's Thursday, September 2016, and in this week's show, we'll be discussing three films that are currently playing or about to open at Film Scene. Our lineup includes The Witch, which plays at Film Scene Saturday night, September 3rd at 11 p.m. as part of Bijou After Hours. Next, we'll be discussing Our Little Sister, which opens at Film Scene tomorrow, September 2nd, and will continue to play throughout the weekend and all next week. Finally, we'll be discussing Don't Think Twice, which opened at Film Scene last week and will continue to play throughout the weekend and all next week. Before we begin to banter, I should introduce my co-hosts. We have Spencer Williams, the cinema major at the University of Iowa. Welcome, Spencer. Hi. One second, Spencer. Hello. There you are. (laughs) We're going to get there one day, guys. (laughs) Uh, and we have Chong Min Yu, a film studies grad student at the University of Iowa. Welcome, Chong Min. Happy to be here. Can you hear Chong Min, Spencer? Um, say hi again. Hi. I can't hear you through these things. <laughs> I can't hear you either. <laughs> Do you want to go down to this one over here? Bear with us, listeners. Uh, I'm Leah Vonderheide, also a film studies grad student. Is working? Testing? Testing? Testing. Uh, no. <laughs> Let me do it. Testing? I'm not hearing you very clearly. You're not hearing me? No, I'm I'm not hearing... Wait, I was hearing you, Spencer. Okay. Wait, yeah, wait. You say testing. Testing. That's good. Testing? No, not me. So go to... Can you go to this one? That's yeah. the one that you were just on, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Hello. Oh, okay. there it's we finally go. working. All right, guys. Okay, let's start with our first film, The Witch. Spencer, can you share your first impressions of this film before we begin our discussion? Yeah, sure. Going back home for the holidays always leaves me feeling anxious, tired, and a little bit terrified. For one, someone always gets to the whiskey before the turkey is served. This, in turn, leads to slurred confrontations about past indiscretions over potatoes and pie. By the end of the night, at least two people are in tears and two casseroles are left untouched. Emotions run high. Feelings get hurt and grudges resurface. Sometimes the last thing I want to do is be with family. However, my thoughts on the matter have shifted ever so slightly upon finishing The Witch, which takes family dysfunction to an entirely new level. I've experienced my fair share of passive aggression at the family table before, but at least I've never been accused of witchcraft. The story begins with a pilgrimage, which is telling because the family we follow throughout this New England spook fest are God-fearing pilgrims themselves, exiled from the log cabin community they initially belonged to. From the jump, things don't go right. Food becomes scarce, babies are lost, and goats rebel against their owners. Hashtag Protestant probs. The majority of the story is seen through the eyes of Thomason, played by the doe-eyed model-turned-actress Anya Taylor-Joy. From the outset, Thomason seems like any other angsty teenage girl vying for independence as long as it is on her terms. In this sense, we are alike, me and her. 
She has a lovingly hostile relationship with her younger siblings and does plenty of chores around the log cabin. The difference between us is, well, I'll let you see the movie. Let's just say this isn't a bloodless movie. While director Roger Egers never outwardly presents Thomason as the cause of her family's strife, it becomes increasingly clear that something isn't right. The Witch, based off of numerous folktales about, you guessed it, witches, utilizes old New England dialogue from various texts to further immerse the viewer into its distinctive setting. The cinematography, courtesy of Jaron, I'm going to butcher this name, uh, Blaschke? Blaschke? Blaschke, is gorgeous and just the right amount of creepy. Barren trees loom menacingly in the distance, fog creeps around the corner, the chimney smokes continuously. I really enjoyed watching the mystery and horror of the witch unfold. What did my banters, my fellow banters, think of this film? Um, so it's really, I thought the cinematography was really beautiful and eerie along with its uh, soundtrack. Um, and I guess maybe you need to have a creepy soundtrack to be a horror film. Is that just... A prerequisite? Okay. Um, So they check one. Um, But I don't think you necessarily have to have such a gorgeous, sumptuous cinematography. Um, And I felt like this film did in a way that made me interested to look at the shots. Um, Some of them almost seemed like renderings of still paintings of the pilgrims, like from American art history or something like it just they felt so the family was often really still as they would sit and pray or eat or pray before they ate and things of that nature so i liked that um i don't like horror films and this this movie did not actually change my mind about the genre (laughs) but i said lots of positive things up front what'd you think john mean Okay, so Spencer's description makes me think of The Visit, actually. Like, <laughs> the horror you feel going back to your grandparents' place. Um, but I do think uh, Leah is right. I think there's a certain kind of sensuousness uh, to the cinematography that is very, very hard to describe, as if, like, uh, the, the whole environment is suffused with magic. And I think that comes out very, very strongly through... Um, the deep colors uh, in each scene. And about the plot, I, I, I mean, there's nothing much to say about the plot because this is a, you know, a story about witches. But I do think uh, the tensions between family members are exciting in this film and they are uh, almost always left ambiguous so you have to guess a little bit what is going to happen next and you are sort of being hooked uh to this kind of development yeah where might we put um this film in the canon of other films about witches like what sets it apart from other witch movies we've seen i'm thinking obviously there's hocus pocus there's suspiria um the Witches, the Witches by Roald Dahl made into a film. Uh, <laughs> Carrie, maybe? Oh, is that considered a witch film? It's pretty witchy. Supernatural. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, I don't think I, it like occurred to me to think of it that way. Um, this is almost more like in line with The Devil's Advocate. <laughs> yeah. With, uh, oh, gracious. Like Charlie's Throne and um, who else is in that movie? Al Pacino? I don't think I've seen that. It's in contemporary times, so it's an odd connection to make. But um, <laughs> but there isn't. But in terms of the stuff that was interesting that Chung Min was t- talking about between family members, like 
there's not just tensions between family members or like there's the tensions aren't just like oh we don't get along there's like lots of sexual tension in this movie between <laughs> family members yeah. and it's kind of going in lots of different directions there's an implied sexual attraction between the younger brother and the older sister there's an odd tension between the father and the sister there's odd sort of jealousy between the mother and the daughter um and of course they're all so isolated that you're kind of like oh is this going to be like a weird sex movie in the (laughs) end is that like what's going to happen here um i won't tell you if it is but yeah (laughs) that's what made me think of the devil's advocate (laughs) I think sexuality, or even more specifically, femininity, is always connected to uh, supernatural powers. So that's why, for example, uh, in Carrie, we see how uh, Carrie's menstruation is some sort of uh, manifestation of her her magic powers. And I think that's also true in this film. I think uh, the narrative seems to be telling us that there's something to be afraid about the girl's budding sexuality. I think that comes out very, very strongly. And how, uh, for example, we have seen some uh, supernatural powers going on in this film and how they are trying to, for example, suck the energy out of uh, young people to regain their youth, right? Yeah, and it's really centered around... Women. I mean, it's really connected around the the intersection of the history of witches being burned in the country slash women being targeted for their sexuality who mm-hmm. weren't witches at all because mm-hmm. that's not a real thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then, the, like the folklore then of of like what a witch actually is. And in this movie, there's an interesting conversation between like our historical past of convicting women for their sexuality and actual supernatural beings who are doing precisely what we're afraid they'll do, which is suck the blood out of young men. Yeah. Yeah. I was feeling the same way. There is sort of this weird um, sexuality that like oozes out of this picture, especially in the scene where the younger brother is sort of lost in the woods and stumbles upon um, just like some random cottage in the woods, and then I guess like Snow White appears or something, like <laughs> with like a red shawl, and that's like a very she's very seductive. But then in sort of these other shots of these um, like witches, they're like old and gangly, and they're like <laughs> making pudding out of babies, and <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and that happens, like, I'll just go ahead and say that that happens so early that, like, we see a witch that I was surprised by that for some reason. I realized this movie's called The Witch. (laughs) But I just thought, like, they were going to toy with us longer, and they introduced the presence of a witch so early on that it then made all of the interesting family dynamics that we've been discussing, like, that much more, like, complicated and and like and interesting and superfluous like all at the same time like i kept thinking like oh this is really interesting i want to know more about this family drama but shouldn't they be worried about the fact that there's like an actual witch in the woods like <laughs> right and i think that is like a source of tension too where they all seem to think in some way or another that the the daughter herself is the one that's like causing all of the grief that surrounds this family and i think the film sets it up in an interesting way where we're not entirely sure if, if like they're wrong about that 
Um, and, and I know that, like, sort of the first witch kind of appears and sort of sets the tone. Like, there are other witches out there, but the, I don't know if the film wants us to think that she's not doing anything either. There's that scene... You think, you think she's, she's devious from the beginning? I don't know, because there's that one scene or that one shot of her early, early on where she's on her knees and she's praying for having broken every single one of her, like, um, I guess, I don't know what they're called, like, She's sinned. Like, yeah, she's done she's every done sin. All the she's sins. done all of the sins. <laughs> but and then that, when she lists them, they're like pretty banal. That's true. And I thought that was just a Catholic costume to confess somewhat. Well, yeah, like they pure. They're specifically they Puritan, Puritan, right? Yeah. So, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. That I mean, that was one of the most interesting things. Is that like, what do you do when you are so religious? Like when your faith is so important to you. Like you have, you kind of have to believe in witches, quite frankly. Right. Like if you're going to believe in the power of the Holy Ghost in the way that they do and the way that they continually express throughout the film to like protect them and save yeah. them and like be their guide, then like they are kind of stuck when they realize like, what if the devil's out there in these witches and they're going to get us? Like they don't get to just be like, oh, but we don't believe in that. They right. like have opened the door to believing in like that kind of evil as yeah. well, which is amazing to me like what a life <laughs> and then, but then again the missionary message is pretty weak in this film though like you see the witches but you didn't see anybody uh who has this kind of holy superpower who can expel the witches right that's usually something we will see in this kind of narrative like uh the exorcist right but it just kind of confirms what they have been thinking about themselves is that as Puritans, they say a million times, I've sinned, I've sinned, I've sinned. And it's sort of like, yeah, you're right. You're <laughs> yeah, not good yeah, enough yeah. to defeat. Exactly. Like, well, God's not on your side. Yeah, getting punished. <laughs> I think that is, like, really interesting, too. I mean, these characters are, like, very devout Protestants, but all of their praying ultimately doesn't save them from this supernatural evil either. And so, I don't know, do you think this film seems sort of in a way, I guess, pessimistic towards devout faith in the sense of, like, I mean, they they move from sort of this community. I guess they exile themselves in a way to sort of carry out this stronger Protestant, I guess, belief than the rest of the community sort of has an, anymore. But at the end of the day, like, all of this, they pray and they pray and they pray, and yet all of this stuff still happens, and the witches are still there, and they seem inconquerable. So. Yeah, this didn't convert me to their... Right. It seems like a lost cause. <laughs> um, <laughs> in the way that it's portrayed in the film. So, yeah, I just... I don't know. I, I can see why it's so seductive to make horror films that are about highly religious people. Because if you do believe in a religion or some type of like supernatural spirit, then you, I don't know, you do kind of open the door to other type of supernatural experiences that maybe aren't so good. Whereas the, like the agnostics and atheists among us can just be like, nah, I don't believe in witches (laughs) any of the other stuff. So (laughs) Uh, let's briefly talk about, uh, Black Phillip, um, who I personally believe is one of the scariest animals I've ever seen of all time. Um, and it definitely is making me not ever want to go back to a petting zoo. Um, what did you guys think of the presence of Black Philip? I mean, he 
It is so weird, right? Because like you, you, you feel his presence, uh, but you probably, um, you you probably have to wait till the very end of the film to know if he's the devil or not. Because I mean, we see like he 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 seems to come from uh, the. Christian iconography that you know the black girl with two big horns, but like somehow you feel like uh, the household itself is built on um, only the suspicions between family members, and they are actually no like superpowers or uh, supernatural powers inside the household. Somehow, I don't know. I, I feel that way. You don't think there's supernatural powers within the household? Yeah, I think because I think that uh, what makes this film so interesting is that uh, we have to doubt our belief that maybe uh, the first few scenes of the film are just you know an old woman. Oh right, right. Yeah, I mean, there's I guess a whole other way to read this film in which certain things could have been hallucinated or imagined. Um, and there's no real way to sort of parse that out. But yeah, Black Phillip is funny because um, the parents are so strict with Thomason and um, yet they have these two twin, like <laughs> really bratty children that are talking to a goat throughout the course of the film. <laughs> and like, they keep blaming the other daughter of witchcraft. And it's sort of like, well, maybe you should talk to the kids who keep talking to that goat right? <laughs> all the time. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know. Like it was, I don't, yeah, <laughs> it's a creepy goat. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> um, all right. So we're going to wrap up there again. The witch plays at film scene Saturday night, September 3rd at 11 PM as part of Bijou after hours. For more information on Bijou after hours, check out Bijou's website, bijou.uiwa.edu. After a quick break, we'll be back to discuss our little sister. Hello, I'm John Lithgow. Manatees are unique among the most amazing animals on Earth, but they're endangered. We pose the greatest threat to their survival. Many manatees are killed or injured by boats or other recreational activities. I'm a writer of children's books, including one about manatees, and I believe education is the key. You can be part of the solution. Please contact Save the Manatee Club right now. Welcome back to Bijou Banter on KRUI Iowa City. This is a show dedicated to discussing films playing locally at Film Scene. Let's move on to our second film, Our Little Sister. Chong Min, before we begin, can you share your thoughts on this sumptuous film? Definitely. So Our Little Sister is about farewell and reunion. It tells the story of three sisters who, after their father passed away, welcomed their half-sister into the family. Nothing much really happens in the film. We see three sisters' mother come to visit, and she appears to be somewhat annoyed by the presence of Suzu, the half-sister. The next day, knowing it was her being petty, the mother brought the presents. Uh, she forgot to all four of them, with Suzu's present rewrapped as a subtle apology. This attention to, to detail... Um, 
demonstrates director Hirokazu Koreeda's meticulousness in tightening his narrative, not in terms of excitement, but in terms of how to form a coherent whole out of banal daily trivialities. All we witness is how these characters go on with their lives. Certainly, we will see some tensions and mishaps on the way, but there's nothing that cannot be dissolved into a heightened sense of maturity and realization towards life. The way the story is told reminds me of a tender breeze blowing through the vicissitudes of life. Some people left, some people came back, and life goes on. Koreeda made his fame at Cannes with Nobody Knows from 2004, a story about four abandoned children sticking together and trying to survive. Since then, he has made bigger、uh, splashes in international film festivals such as Cannes and Venice. One of his recent films, Still Walking from 2008, a masterpiece really, has already been released by the Criterion Collection. If you have seen his films, you might think there's some sort of connection between him and Ozu. But in fact, he was inspired by Taiwanese director Hou Xiaoxian's A Time to Live and A Time to, to Die from 1985, which is probably an apt phrase to describe Koreeda's aesthetic. My fellow banterers, how do you like it? I loved it.、Um, it felt like watching a Jane Austen adaptation, like the sweet kind, not the love and friendship kind from this summer, which I also <laughs> liked, but is the more sharp tongued type.、Um, just the idea of sort of sisters who are trying to figure out their way through the world, who have been torn apart by different types of family situations that were beyond their control and then brought together by their own thoughtful willfulness. And、um, while we do learn about their lives outside of their own sisterhood, like who they're dating and what kind of jobs they have,、um, that all kind of remains around the edges and the margins. And what's really important is their, the deepening of their relationships without it ever turning to the melodramatic or sappy, I think. I thought it seemed. It, Kind of, it's more realistic, or you know, kind of uses a realist aesthetic in that way. Yeah, I enjoyed watching this movie too.、Um, I like his films a lot.、Um, I remember especially liking like Father Like Son when it played at film scene a couple years ago.、Um, yeah, I thought that、um, I guess the story of these sisters, it's, it did seem so, their relationships seemed very authentic, and sort of the banter that they have with each other is like. Light but also rife with tensions、um, that are sort of go unspoken、um, to each other. But then, like, when a sister leaves the room, they'll be like, oh, blah, 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 blah. And I love that <laughs> because that's exactly what I do with my siblings. <laughs> so I don't know. I thought it was very touching. And I thought that sort of bringing in、um, a sister who isn't from necessarily their generation, too, is sort of an interesting dynamic because then I guess they're sort of thrust into the role of like parenting, which is interesting to watch all three of them navigate at once. Okay, so there's actually a Japanese literary tradition in depicting four sisters, the most representative of which is、uh, Junichiro Tenizaki's The Makikoka Sisters.、Um, so,、uh, and The Makikoka Sisters was later adapted by an important Japanese director, Kong Ichikawa, in the 1980s. 
this is also a film recently released by the Criterion. Okay, I want. I just want to know how you think uh, the chemical reaction between these four sisters. Um, and it's rare to see such an intimate picture on screen. And also, like their relationships are somewhat built upon a tacit understanding of uh, how important um, each sister is, like in their life, for example. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what Spencer was saying earlier is so true that a lot of what happens in the film is they're either all together or somebody or like two or three of them are in a room and they're talking about the one or ones that are absent and they're trying to figure out their motivations for making the kinds of life decisions that they're making, which is so true about the way in which siblings interact, that they are so familiar. They have so many things in common with you that the little things that you don't understand about them um, seem enormous to you. Like, how could they ever pursue that romantic relationship? Or why do they want that kind of job? Or why are they drinking that much beer? Or whatever the thing is. Um, And so they... I mean, I just thought it was a really thoughtful portrayal. And you see the little sister who's being brought into this mix. Initially, they don't... She doesn't have that relationship with them because you are a little bit more careful with strangers. You don't want to be mean towards them or judgmental of them. And yet, as she kind of comes into the family, then they start having more to say about her. And she has more to say about them as she gets to know them. So it's, I thought, an accurate portrayal. Yeah, me too. I especially like the scenes where they sort of... I like scenes like this in general where a bunch of people come together over food mm-hmm. and I guess the process of making the food and then I guess sharing it um, amongst each other, but then also bringing in boyfriends too that sort of come in and out of this movie at will. Um, yeah, and I think there's also, I really liked the connection that these sisters had with this one uh, coffee shop mm-hmm. that um, sort of holds a lot of memories nostalgia um for these sisters that is like on the verge i guess of no longer existing and i think that i don't know i really liked sort of the interactions between these sisters who knew the woman who owns the store when they were very very little um and then being grown up and going back and then having the new sister come in and not having that shared experience with these sisters but then slowly i guess integrating herself into kind of that memory yeah. I think you're absolutely right about like how different objects, uh, food, uh, or locales can evoke a certain kind of nostalgia and memory uh, in different scenes. And they are almost uh, Prussian in that sense. Like they can always bring up a very, very sensuous and poignant kind of uh, recollection from the past. And so my next question is a question of judgment. Do you find the story too sweet, too good to be true? I'm asking this because I'm such a big fan of Koreeda, but nowadays I'm becoming more and more ambivalent toward his style. It seems to me that he's working on a fine, fine line, so if he misses a step, the narrative balance would be all crashing down. How do you feel about that? It's almost too pure, like as if the the narrative word is being purified. Well, 
Yes and no. I mean, so this movie doesn't have a big giant resolve. Like it doesn't, mostly because it doesn't have a big giant like central conflict. They're all just very small conflicts. And each time you think something's going to um, become a bigger problem, it's just shortly after isn't because that is more often the case in, I think, family disputes than having, like, a really big blow-up and where people just never talk to each other again. (laughs) I mean, that happens, but, like, mostly you have small disagreements or you tease each other or you whatever, but then the very next day, everything's fine again. Um, And I don't know. I just... I Because I didn't think... I didn't think it was too pure, mostly because it just doesn't do the happy ending. But maybe I'm being too, like, the big happy ending, the big resolution. Um, but maybe I'm being too generous. Um, I would say that I thought, I mean, I agree. I don't think there's, like, one big central conflict. And I don't know, I guess what differentiates, I guess, this movie from other movies about families is that there aren't, like, these long... Um, dramatic monologues that, like, you see in Oscar reels um, for, like, best actress or actor, like, year and year again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, there aren't any of those, like, big sort of cathartic moments where, like, tears are just, like, rushing down the faces of the people performing them. And I think, I don't know, I think I enjoyed, it was refreshing to see this movie and not have any of that, but at the same time, there was a part of me that wished that there was something more that was happening. I think there was such a lack of um, conflict in this movie that whenever the eldest sister was, like, even just, like, the slightest bit stern with the youngest sister, I was like, oh, oh my goodness. Like, (laughs) it, it, like, hurt me to watch that. And I think maybe, I guess, I don't know. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, really. I think that it was just... There's so many movies about families, but I don't think I've ever seen one that played it so understated like this one um, that I can remember, at least. Well, I think that's what uh, Odu is famous for because uh, I remember somebody once said that a slap in a film by Odu is uh, stronger and more emotional than 1,000 people being killed in a Tarantino film. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's a pretty stark contrast. <laughs> um, I would say it's more powerful than, yeah. I mean, it, there's just it's such a human film. I mean, there everybody in the film is having such a it's representing such human experiences. And even though there's not a big cathartic scene where somebody is sort of speech delivering. Um, there are small moments of catharsis, just like there's very small moments of conflict. So the beautiful scene of her on the bike under the cherry blossoms is like, in another film, that would be played for like, oh, everything's going to change now. The whole world is different. She sees <laughs> things anew. And instead, in, in the film, it's this beautiful scene. She feels a certain lightness. And things have been shifting slowly for her over time and they continue to shift over time for this younger sister who's integrating into the family. But that it's not as if like that scene changes everything. It's just a beautiful bike ride on a beautiful day and it's a moment of release and it's one of many moments. Um, and I really thought that this film did a nice job of collecting all of those small moments. There's no like indie rock soundtrack playing over. The <laughs> oh, that is a beautiful soundtrack in this film as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Um, 
which I think was also making me think of Jane Austen adaptations, mm-hmm. like something about that piano and I don't know. So like, I feel this film is almost like a collection of snapshots, like Polaroids, like you would take like a beautiful, beautiful moment down within this kind of medium and you'll look at it and you'll contemplate about it. I think that is uh, what... Uh, the aesthetic of the film is trying to convey to the audience. I think so. Yeah. I think so, definitely. Um, Okay, well, we'll wrap up there. Again, Our Little Sister uh, opens at Film Scene tomorrow, September 2nd, and will continue to play throughout the weekend and all next week for a complete list of showtimes. Check out Film Scene's website, icfilmscene.org. Before we move on to our third film, let's check on the weather. It's currently fair and 71 degrees in Iowa City. Tonight, mostly clear with a low of 51 degrees. Tomorrow, Friday, sunny with a high of 76. You're listening to Bijou Banter on KRUI, Iowa City. Bijou Banter is a show dedicated to discussing films, playing locally, at Film Scene. Don't Think Twice is the second feature-length film by stand-up comic Mike Birbiglia. The film explores the ups and downs and general antics of the fictional New York City-based improv troupe, The Commune. The six-member troupe includes Kate Micucci as Allison, a hesitant cartoonist with a wild imagination, Chris Gethardt as Bill, a hummus salesman whose career has disappointed his successful businessman father, Samantha, oh, sorry, Tim Sager as Lindsay, a pot-smoking yet talented writer from a wealthy family. Jillian Jacobs as Samantha, a talented comic who many years ago ran away to join the sketch comedy circus. Keegan Michael Key as Jack, Samantha's confident boyfriend who seeks stardom beyond the commune. And of course, Mike Berbiglia as Miles, an improv teacher who just wants a little credit for his efforts. When Jack and Samantha get an offer to audition for Weekend Live, a stand-in for Saturday Night Live, each member of the commune is forced to reflect on both their career and life goals. Not only does the life of an improv artist make it hard to pay the bills, it also seems to thrive on a state of perpetual arrested development. In fact, most of the commune members live together in an actual commune that resembles, in the words of one character, a college dorm. I am a big fan of Mike Birbiglia's work on This American Life and of his previous film, Come Sleepwalk With Me. I'm also a huge fan of improv comedy, guys. I've seen Second City a million times. (laughs) So I definitely enjoyed this film, and I want to be clear about that. However, I also felt it suffered from some melodramatic flaws. Mainly, I didn't buy into the central romance between Jack and Samantha. So tell me, banters, am I being too cynical, or did their romance seem a bit forced in an otherwise delightful film i thought it did i thought it felt very forced i don't think the relationship was anything <laughs> was anything other than um i gotta go to work okay <laughs> like that was or like i mean the one cathartic moment that they have too i just felt i mean it's it was in front of a live audience i don't know i just felt there was something so performative <laughs> so performative about it right and i feel like even though it was supposed to seem like this very like egoless moment there was still some kind of ego there just in sort of the act of performing that moment. Um, I don't know. I like the characters individually. Um, Did you like the film generally? Or yeah. Just- I mean, I don't really know too much about 
improv comedy. I think I went to like one show here freshman year. I don't, I absolutely don't know who, what Second City is. Oh my <laughs> gosh! Like how you felt about Pokemon is like how I feel about improv comedy. I don't really know much about it. Um, from what I can gather though, I mean, it's, it's just like on the spot, just like coming up with things without having written them down prior, correct? Right, but usually in sketch improv, you have practiced certain ways of being with each other on the stage. So you'll be a set troupe. Right. And so when you're taking suggestions from um, the audience to set a certain scene, certain things in the scene have already been decided or practiced okay. by the group. But it is, I mean, there is a heck of a lot of actual improvisation that happens in improv. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I thought the group dynamic was certainly um, fun and interesting. And I thought they were all, funny and what they do um and i think it's also interesting to this sort of clash of egos that occurs um between especially between uh, mike berbiglia's character and um keegan michael key's character too there's like this clash of the male ego that i found kind of really funny looking at it from the outside um yeah okay so i didn't buy the romance because it is not very convincing at all. Uh, but I think the bigger problem of this film, again, is about... I don't know, I just feel... If I, if I doubt uh, about whether or not our little sister is too sweet, I think, don't think twice, is definitely too sweet and too happy about everything. And the narrative is totally built upon privileges. Completely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about that because they, I couldn't tell if this was the movie being self-aware on a level or being totally un, unaware of itself because they channel all of their anger about privilege into Lindsay, who comes from a wealthy family and her parents are paying for her um, psychiatry sessions. Room and board, I psychology. think. <laughs> yeah, yeah they're, they're giving her room and board. They're paying for her to see a fancy psychologist and... Um, she just, apparently it's like a little bit easier for her to get by, but it would seem that all of the characters living (laughs) in New York city must have some type of support from other people and spaces. And like, even other family members show up where there seems to be an implied, like, oh, you're getting support from somewhere else, or at least you're not making student loan payments, right? you know, like like at some point (laughs) someone has supported you in your life or like, you don't, you seem like you're able to make the kinds of decisions that you're making at this point in your 30s. So I couldn't tell if that was like the movie saying this is what actually happens. Like people want to blame just one person for having privilege, even when like they all, they all do. They all they do. All do. <laughs> and like, that's just what happened. Cause like that happens in real life. Like those types of dynamics play out. But at the same time, maybe the movie wasn't aware. Of that. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I was thinking about even like Kate Micucci's character who mm-hmm. is like, a cartoonist who's never sent out any cartoons ever, like what, but is still sort of able to exist and function, like, and so, in New York City. City. Like, <laughs> what does she do outside of. And I the don't think they I ever show us, right? No, the character like is really very, underwritten. <laughs> yeah, there was like a very, very short montage where we see sort of each member's. I guess day job, kind of. Um, so yeah, what's her job? But I don't remember. That's I don't the think thing. they it show so what she's doing. Right? Yeah, I don't. Like there was the one shot of Kia Michael Key wearing like a construction uniform for like two seconds. And yeah, like two seconds. Like, oh, okay. 
Oh, I thought he was delivering sandwiches. I don't... Oh, I thought mom? he was wearing like an orange. Well, like, doing some manual jobs. Maybe he has both. Yeah, he's going to work so many jobs. Yeah, I just, I couldn't figure out. I mean, that's another problem that this movie suffers from is there are six members in this troupe and it is not able to really juggle all of them separately, I no. would say. Like, we end up spending a lot of time instead on this romance, which is why I think I'm picking on the romance is because the movie seems to want to spend a lot of time with that and it just seems like... The romance isn't working, and I don't know what Kate Micucci does to support herself. Like, yeah. it's too problematic. <laughs> I mean, even Mike Birbiglia's character arc, um, his character, is it Jack? Uh, it, no, that's no, Miles. Miles. Um, yeah, Miles. Even his sort of story arc, I was very confused by. I mean, out of, like, if we're talking about Arrested Development, like, his is certainly far stronger than everyone else's, and yet <laughs> his sort of shift into sort of fatherhood i guess is very felt very inauthentic to me it felt too fast yeah yeah that, that, that is too a little improvised <laughs> yeah it felt a little oh my god i don't know what i'm gonna do next in my life let me just try this thing yeah, <laughs> that may be was, a father please. and it was treated with a really soft sweet touch when it should have been more ludicrous like yeah. that this was happening all right, well, let's talk a little bit about Samantha, which is the Jillian Jacobs character. Um, she's a talented comic, but she doesn't want to be famous. And just generally, I was this movie, If this I think was a plus about this movie, is it left me thinking, do you think it's possible for an artist to seek success without indulging in or even relying on self-promotion? I think to a certain extent it is. I don't think it's possible for... Um, comedians because you have to have that interaction with your audience and you have to rely on their support to a certain extent so that part of the narrative just doesn't seem very convincing to me somehow because I don't know if people would just like oh I want to stay um, anonymous I want to do my art I want to distance myself away from the fame, the, you know, the glittery stuff or whatever. Yeah, I don't know. What did you think, Spencer? Um, I, don't, I thought Samantha was my personally, like, personally my favorite character of the movie. Um, and I don't know. I think for her, at least, it seemed that, I mean, all she really wants to do is just to do improv comedy whether it be sort of like on her own like by herself like a one-woman show almost it seems or even allowing other people to fall in love with improv the way that she did and sort of the way that she's teaching her classes and I think a lot of sort of um I guess I mean that's still participating in sort of the art form that she loves and I don't necessarily think um that like um, it's not impossible, I guess, to sort of be satisfied with that. I mean, she seemed to be satisfied with that. And I believed that she was satisfied, I guess, with that. And meanwhile, I guess, in contrast, I mean, her boyfriend obviously didn't. Um, but that that relation, that was another thing about the relationship was that he he seemed to want to push her towards wanting more out of what she was doing. And I guess she finds things um, that are outside of just performing that ultimately, I guess, give her sort of validation. It's just not what he's expecting. Um, I mean, she meets an entire group of new friends um, through, like, mentorship, and I think that was, like, a very touching moment, too. But doesn't she... I thought that then that scene 
ultimately gets played out where it's not as fulfilling to keep kind of restarting a friend group who's in their early 20s when you decide you're not willing to take your career to the quote-unquote next step. And I'm not saying she has to or that like to be um, successful in your art, you actually have to be a celebrity or you have to actually seek fame. But there did seem to me to be a bit of a crisis between the fact that she wants everything to stay exactly the same, but clearly that's not sustainable because the very theater that they're practicing in also can't sustain itself because like you need to attract audiences who can pay a lot of money to see your art if you want to keep doing that. And if you're unwilling, then like you, you could suffer the consequences of losing the ability to do it at all. That's true. I think there are also different kinds of improv in this film. Like one is uh, represented by Jack, who's always uh, imitating Obama mm-hmm. in the film. And there's all, another more sincere, touching kind uh, that is evinced by uh, the entire group or just Samantha. And I think um, the film seems to be saying that improv has to be honest or improv should not cater to a general public's test somehow. Yeah, that's true. Because he, when he does his Obama impression, like it didn't fit into the improv sketch. And so he's showboating. He's doing something that's been pre-rehearsed. He's doing something that his character, his fellow troopmates can't play off of. And so, yeah, maybe there is a, better, a deeper message to the film about like just the nature of improv comedy. Um, like, can it, maybe it actually doesn't survive um, at higher levels of exposure because it by nature just has to stay really, really small scale. Um, did you, what did you make of the improv comedy scenes? Is it possible to accu- accurately represent improv in a film when we saw them in the theater performing? I was actually wondering if the improv parts were scripted or not. Because if sometimes I thought that they might have been. I think that they must have been. Yeah. yeah. And I guess if that's <laughs> the case too, then I'm not so certain that, I mean, hmm. I don't, I'm not so certain that if it was scripted, if maybe, I don't know, maybe I would have liked to have seen it actually be improvised, I guess, to get a better feel. Because I feel like there might be a little bit more stumbling that happens in like a setting where it's just like, okay, get up and go versus Mm -hmm. just like, okay, these are the lines that I memorized and I'm going to try and present them naturally as I can. But yeah, I was trying to figure out like, how could you in a film ever accurately represent an improv scene though? Like... I, like on TV, like we have it on TV with whose line is it anyways, where like you can at least like on screen show improv and, you okay. know, and and you can come to the TV and trust that like these people are really improving. This hasn't been scripted. But like in a movie, it's a lot harder to portray an entire improv sketch scene in a way that would get across what improv sketch comedy is. You mean <laughs> the film would lose improvs a uh, spontaneous feel like I, I because I'm, I I still think the improv scenes uh, in the film are the best scenes oh you did yeah like in the theater uh yeah oh that's funny because I felt like they were 
like I wanted them to be funnier, but then I thought like they can't like they can't be as funny as if you were actually watching an improv right. trip perform. <laughs> because you're not there. Because <laughs> you're not there. Yeah. Well, for me, I thought the best parts of the film um, was the parodying of Saturday Night Live. So everything from the fake intro credits to the pseudo Lorne Michaels to the faux musical guest act. Um, not only did these moments elicit the biggest laughs for me, they also offered a fleeting reflection on the role of Saturday Night Live in popular culture. On the one hand, it's a show that's offered significant social satire since 1975 and is responsible for many of our most famous Hollywood actors and movies. On the other hand, it's just another star vehicle that often falls short of trenchant commentary and has struggled to maintain a truly diverse cast over the years. So I'm curious, is Saturday Night Live a show that either of you watch? And did this movie encourage you to reflect further on it? Um, (laughs) As it did me. (laughs) I don't watch Saturday Night Live. Sometimes, like, people will show me clips of it on YouTube. Mm -hmm. And, like, I'll have, like, a chuckle and then forget about it, like, in the next 20 minutes. Um, I don't know. I don't particularly... I mean, of what I've seen, I don't particularly find it, like, laugh out loud funny. Um, and I wasn't sure if the film, and I guess maybe that's why I wasn't sure if the film was trying to present it as something that was legitimately funny or if it was trying to play off of this idea. Cause like when they're all sitting down to watch it in front of the TV, they don't think it's funny. And so I was wondering if I, if that was just their jealousy in that moment or if I too was supposed to feel, oh yeah, that's like not funny well, one of the funny things that it pointed to that I I definitely don't think about as as much is if you because Saturday Night Live is performed in front of a live audience, mm-hmm. um, and it's not improv, but they are all sketches that have been written that week. So I mean, they're kind of just flying by the seat of their pants to try and make sure that they're hitting their lines and marks and everything. And they're often working with um, non professional improv actors, so the and sometimes not even professional actors. Um, but it it did occur to me that what you see on TV when it's performed would be so different if you were actually there in the audience. And I bet a lot of those sketches come off way funnier when you're sitting there and somebody is performing it live in front of you. And that seemed really underscored by the musical guest scene where, like, mm-hmm. since I can remember watching Saturday Night Live, I've, like, been baffled by the musical guest things because there's two of them in every Saturday Night Live, <laughs> like two performances by a single musical guest. And it's like you just always skip it or you like I would like leave the room and get a snack during those <laughs> things. So I just found them so boring. They were such a like weird punctuation in the middle of Saturday Night Live. And in this movie they pretty accurately show like if you're there as a guest in those in that studio, it's like you're at a rock concert. So it's really exciting and you feel like it's the best band ever, I'm sure, and you're really blown away whereas like if you're just watching it on your TV you're like is stupid <laughs> uh, i guess you called them like punctuations i felt the same way about these weird celebrity cameos that kept happening oh yeah where oh, yeah. i was just like what like why i, I felt I, like i don't care I felt <laughs> seriously like the, um I, I really liked the lena dunham cameo because she seemed like the perfect person to kind of cameo in this film about people who have mixed feelings about stardom. Or even like <laughs> too. Yeah, and You're privilege. Mean. And just like this kind of, like, uh, uh, this... You mean as an ironic gesture? Almost, right? Like she seemed, cause, and especially the way she plays that little, it's just like one moment, right? It's yeah. when he, it's Because she's the guest 
host um, for um, J- Jack's first yeah. Saturday Night mm-hmm. Live or Weekend Live show. Um, the Ben Stiller stuff I thought was super dry it was and like weird. It felt made me feel very uncomfortable. <laughs> he is so no like, no. Lead, is he still ho- like? Does he host? Does he still like movies? <laughs> like is he like a current a- contemporary? Well, I, I think so. Oh, the second one. Yeah, the second one. Wasn't he in that? Yeah. Like, I don't remember anything else he's been in. Like I like Ben Stiller. I just felt like he was a really random. random. Yeah. yeah. I think like his presence in is. In this film, it's awkward, but not awkward in a good way, right? It's not like, oh, just like full force awkward, like Louis C.K.'s. Like, oh, it's making me so uncomfortable that I'm starting to think about some things. He's just like, why are you here? Like, I don't want you here, that kind of reaction. It made me feel like I was wondering if he was like playing like a bit or if that's just like actually like how he would respond in that scenario. And if so, I was like, oh, like, ew. <laughs> that's yeah. true. Yeah, I don't know. Because Ben Stiller used to be kind of the king of playing it the perfect amount of awkward in a way that I like Louis C.K. has kind of surpassed him at this point. But um, yeah, I don't know. If he had tried to be more like lean into the bit more i might have resented him even further so i don't know maybe he <laughs> did the best he could because i think tammy's character she's she's like gushing over how much she loves him and then she's like i just love like how you play all of these like unlikable characters and he's like unlikable characters what and i'm just like no but that's exactly true that's like yeah, true though anyone watching your movies would agree that that is actually the case so and I'm wondering, he would too you would think yeah i'm like is he self-aware in this moment or is this just like i don't know what's happening is here. the movie trying to make a point in that moment that the things that we say to famous people are really weird like that's not actually a compliment either on her part it might be true but it's not right. necessarily like an actual compliment right so i don't know I, I don't know. I feel I feel like this film, although I still like it, um, has a serious problem with its dramatic balance. Like in terms of how um, how awkward a scene should be, or how you are going to arrange uh, each character so they could all have uh, enough time to develop in the film. Like like all different kinds of balance um, are off in a sense. Yeah, should they just have had like one less troop member? Like, would that have started to solve the problems? Should they have just not had a central romance? I don't. I could have done without the romance, and I think there was the only dramatic moment that I felt that I felt was authentic was like in the passing of one of the troop members' fathers. I thought that was. But then, see, but then I'm going back and forth because then immediately after it happens, they're making jokes about it. And I'm like, I don't know if that, I don't know if that painting that's felt so raw three seconds ago mm-hmm. is suddenly something that someone would then turn around and be like, oh, let's use this in like a bit. I think this film is supposed to be about a middle-aged crisis, but it is not a crisis at all in its presentation. Yeah. Yeah, I just felt like there was odd flaws. But so, just did you enjoy the act of watching it? Yeah, it was fluff. <laughs> I mean, I feel pretty good about it. I yeah. wouldn't lie. Yeah, I couldn't tell. I mean, but I don't think we're being too harsh, right? Like, there was a no. bunch of narrative flaws. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I almost felt like at some point they got like a bunch of really bad notes from producers that was just like, 
make this couple have sex for for no reason and like make these add this extra character who's just really quirky and then you know and they like took all those suggestions as opposed to being like we're gonna edit those out you know like thanks for your notes but no thanks right i mean because (laughs) even his sleepwalk with me was such like an intimate personal affair and i thought that movie did such a better job in sort of balancing the drama and the um the i guess the jokes too and that's sort of dealing with the middle-aged crisis i guess as well um just like as a solo act though and i felt but i thought that that was like way more of an authentic experience and i didn't walk away feeling like okay like wanting to sort of just like put my hand on like each character and be like listen (laughs) you're fine you're fine you're You're gonna be okay i promise just like go to whole foods and like take a lap like Um, all right, so one more question about Saturday Night Live. Uh, we have Kristen Wiig, Tina Fey, Amy Poehler, Jimmy Fallon, Will Ferrell, Adam Sandler, Chris Farley, Mike Myers, <laughs> Eddie Murphy, Bill Murray, Chevy Chase, John Belushi. The list goes on and on and on. These are all um, SNL alums, but c- do we credit or can we credit SNL for giving us these stars? Like, is that an important show, like conduit into the world for people who are extremely funny and talented or would they have found stardom regardless of the vehicle? What do you guys think? I think they would have some of them at least. (laughs) (laughs) I I think comedy is such a weird medium because like you see uh, all of these great comedians, uh, they'll be famous for a short while. They seem so much in sync with their time that after a while, uh, they are just not funny anymore. I don't know why. Yeah. And definitely with like expanding media possibilities, I guess you don't have to go through SNL. But this movie definitely makes it seem like that's your one conduit into other levels of success. It well, doesn't suggest that you could be wildly successful by going like having any other path. Well, I, mean, I think and that's why I think the Lena Dunham cameo is interesting too because she was never on SNL and yet she's like right. running things at HBO and like writing books and she has like her own kind of empire. So I'm not necessarily sure that that's the And case. Ben Stiller never was on yeah. SNL, right? Um all right. Well, we're going to wrap it up there. Uh, again, Don't Think Twice opened at Film Scene last week and will continue to play throughout the weekend and all. Next week, for a complete list of showtimes, check out Film Scene's website, icfilmscene.org. If you're interested in seeing film that challenges, inspires, educates, and entertains in downtown Iowa City, please check out Film Scene and Film Scene's website, icfilmscene.org. To find this and past episodes of Bijou Banter, please check out Bijou's website, bijou.uiowa.edu. All of our episodes are also available on iTunes. You've been listening to Bijou Banter. Spencer, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. Chang Mi, and it's a pleasure as always. Likewise. I'm Leah, and I look forward to more banter next week.